Hello, and welcome to G Talking All That Jazz. This podcast is really the testimony of a friendship that spans over four decades, a friendship between two professional black men that began in Harlem in the mid-1970s. As young men, both learning from each other on how to navigate the sometimes formidable and unapologetic streets of Harlem, New York, both here and now, still standing with a wealth of transferable knowledge. As you join G and Jazz on their journey of reflection, listen. Listen closely for the true messages about friendship because the trials and tribulations come at a cause. G and Jazz will share their thoughts on a variety of topics from love and relationships to family and politics. And of course, friendship again. Welcome to G talking all that jazz. Enjoy the journey and oh, and buckle up. So Jazz, what's up, man? What's up? What's up? What's up? Listen, my friend, once again, nothing has changed, man. I got my eyes close to the grindstone. I'm sharpening my weapons because there are wicked people trying to get me. I am an angel of God. And if you don't come up to me ready, I'm going to stab you right in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, bro, we got another interesting podcast coming up, man. But no before we start, man, let's get our disclaimer in. Let's get our disclaimer bong, bong, in. Bong, 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 bong. All the stories you're about to hear are all true. True. Names, events, places, and dates will not be changed. Not be changed. And if we hurt your feelings because we dropped your name in that little story, you shouldn't have hung with us. And we are Beyonce sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have an interesting podcast for you today. I would like to read you a bio of a very, very important and special man, uh, Dr. Basil Smichael Jr., who is a professor at Rutgers University, Newark, in the School of Public Affairs and Administration, and lectures at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and Teachers College. He, has, he was most recently the distinguished lecturer of politics and public policy at the City University of New York School of Labor and Urban Studies. He holds a PhD in politics and education and an MPA from Columbia University and received a Bachelor's of Science from Cornell University. With over 15 years in higher education and 25 years of career dedicated to public service, Basil regularly shares insights on electoral politics, governance, and public policy on national media outlets such as MSNBC, CNN, and Bloomberg TV. Previously, Basil was appointed by Governor Andrew Cuomo and former Governor David Patterson to serve as an executive director of the New York State Democratic Party where he was the second highest Democrat in the state. Basil worked closely with elected officials and community leaders to manage electoral and fundraising strategies for the state. He recruited candidates for political office and worked closely with the Democratic National Committee to create, to create grassroots mobilization programs and act as a party surrogate during the 2016 cycle. Under Basil's leadership, Democrats flipped county legislators and countywide seats, laying the foundation for returning the state Senate 
to full Democratic control in 2018 and flipping three congressional seats. A lifelong New Yorker and raised in the Bronx by Jamaican immigrants, he's inspired by his father, a retired textile worker and a mother, a longtime public school education teacher. Basil is a proud member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated and Prince Hall Free and Accepted Masons, as well as the 100 Black Men of New York, where he helped start the Eagle Academy in the Bronx, which has grown to six schools in New York and New Jersey. He is also a founding board member of the Harlem Hebrew Academy Charter School and sits on the board of the New York City Center for Charter Excellence. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, let me introduce you to Mr. Basil Ace Michael Jr. And the he crowd goes wild. <laughs> yeah, I, so I, Basil, have, I have, man, I'm I have, so happy to have you, bro. No, I'm happy to I'm happy to be here, man. I I, I usually have crowd noises on on record to pipe them in. <laughs> uh, but I, I didn't cue it up today. <laughs> so so um so uh, should I call you Doctor Smichael? Because I'm never oh, gonna man, call it's, uh, it's bad, but, but it's brother, it's brother. It's <laughs> so look, my friend, you call me Doctor McAllister when you. I'm want never to gonna call you Doctor McAllister. <laughs> never. So so Baz, I'm gonna jump right in, man. I'm gonna yeah. ask you a, a hot question. Um, it's been on the news. It's been on you know about this confirmation. It has been said that the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Bennett could impact the landmark decisions like Roe versus Wade, which is pretty much a woman's right to choose about what to do with her body, as well as the Affordable Care Act, which was instituted under President Obama's administration. In your professional political experience, what are your thoughts on how does this impact people of color in America just in general? Well, let me, let me, it's a great question. So let me zoom out a little bit and kind of start, um, start at a sort of different place and then come back to that question because I think this first piece is important. Um, this president has in some ways set records for the speed at which he has um, filled vacancies in the federal bench. He has, in the short period of time that he's been president, so three, three and a half years, he has changed the majority of appeals courts to full GOP control. He has appointed or nominated and had confirmed over a quarter of all the fed, active federal judges on the court right now. So that's a quarter of over 800 federal judges that he himself, Donald Trump, has appointed. Um, and uh, as you as you indicated, this this Supreme Court justice would be the third of his short presidency. And so what that what that says is that he will essentially uh, have so much power. Scratch that. He he has created a, a power a powerful uh, judicial. Uh, uh, block for conservatives in this country. So if, you, if you're a conservative, that's fine. But it does have very significant ramifications for folks of color. Just think about the fact that Florida voters 
some years ago, voted through referendum to restore the voting rights of over 1.5 million individuals who were incarcerated. Most of those people are African, African-American men, but the conservative uh, uh, governor of Florida decided to block that referendum and go to court so that those felons would not have their rights restored. That went to a federal appeals court, which, uh, which upheld that. So the, you have this appeals court now that is predominantly uh, conservative, uh, blocking the opportunity for 1.5 million formerly incarcerated, most of them black men, blocking their ability to cast their vote and, and, and have their rights restored. We've seen pockets of that across the country, Texas, Wisconsin, other states where these appeals courts are blocking um, opportunities for ballot access, um, and, and it would affect predominantly people of color and poor people. So I would say that there is a lot happening below the Supreme Court that has substantial impact on the lives of people of color. So when you, and black, and black men in particular, and so when you look, therefore, at what's happening at the Supreme Court, should she be nominated, and it, I mean confirmed, and it looks like she will be, this would be the most conservative court that the country has seen since the 1930s, with the six to three uh, conservative uh, advantage. So we're thinking about what the impact is, and you've asked that question, and certainly it does impact things like Roe versus Wade, though my sense is that that might largely stay intact. What I think is the most, and, and marriage equality, which was uh, decided as well several years ago by the Supreme Court, I think that largely stays intact. I, what, I, what I feel is, be, is gonna be threatened the most will be the Voting Rights Act because we've seen that the guts of that were already taken out by the Supreme Court in 2013. Um, I think affirmative action might as well be dead. I think the, there are going to be multiple attacks on the Affordable Care Act, and uh, the guts of it will be stripped as well, or at least that's the potential in this coming court. And if you consider the fact that you know her nomination, that, that the average Supreme Court justice, by the from the time that they're nominated by a president to the time they're confirmed, on average it's roughly 70 days. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away, had the shortest at 50. Um, this particular uh, uh, confirmation he uh, hearing and process w is likely to be significantly shorter than that. So you see how important it is, not just for this president, but for conservatives in Congress and across the country. You see how important it is for them to be to, to push through this justice, because even if Donald Trump loses, the effect that he'll have on the judiciary is going to be something that even if Joe Biden wins, he will not have the same impact that Donald Trump has had in a short period of time on nominating judges because the, the, the vacancies just won't be there. Um, so this was a long-term plan, but whether Donald Trump was in, in the White House or not, the kind of the, 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 the judiciary, the makeup of the judiciary that has occurred under Donald Trump is something Republicans have been planning for decades. Um, and this is why I always tell people in all of my statements about campaigns and elections, 
to focus on judges because they haven't, it's not just who's at the Supreme Court, it's who's at these other levels um, that have a substantial impact on, on day-to-day policy. Thank you. Oh, ahead, oh, and, and we have seen through, through some of the landmark cases that you mentioned and, and also with Brown versus the Board of Ed, um, we've seen, we, we talked about same-sex marriage, a Burgerfield versus Hodges case and have changed the landscape for our country. Um, so when we think about our three branches of government, we think about our executive, our legislative, and our judicial branch, um, you, you, you presented how the judiciary system, our judiciary system has such a, an impact on our society. What do you feel um, or in your opinion, what branch of government has the most power and the most influence over the populace of this country? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. In fact, the Constitution was very clear and the framers were very clear that they didn't want any one institution having dominance over the other or over our lives, which is why they instituted the um, the, the concept of checks and balances. What we've seen, however, over the course of modern history is that the bureaucracy has grown substantially, right? Like when you look back to FDR and the New Deal, when you, when you think about the Great Society through Lyndon Johnson and the war on poverty, all of the programs that have been implemented in, in certainly between those presidencies, but during those presidencies, we've seen government expand because the work that government does has just increased and grown, right? The country has grown, the, uh, we've become more diverse, we've become more complex as a society. So the things that government does just has grown and increased substantially. So the bureaucracy that the president of the United States is head of the executive branch, the bureaucracy, <laughs> that he controls is substantial. Um, but the president doesn't make laws. And I always tell people the presidents do not make laws. They don't have that power and authority. They can control the bureaucracy. They can, with approval from the Senate, uh, sign, you know, sign and negotiate treaties. They can confirm judges and fill certain, certain vacancies, but they don't make laws. So the, the, when you think about the, legislate, the legislature and, and, and Congress, they do have a tremendous amount of power because if for nothing else, they have power of the purse. Congress can only approve or approve budgets. And most of that data, most of that work comes out of one committee, which is the Ways and Means Committee. So all of the power to, to, to collect revenue through taxes or to spend money in the budget to give to agencies comes out of Congress. And much of that work, as I said, comes out of one committee. The president can come in and say, this is what I want, but Congress is who decides, Congress is the body that decides whether or not the president's gonna get what he or she wants. And so from the perspective of, of, of spending, you know, Congress has a tremendous amount of power and we've talked about the judiciary and the role that they have and why the judiciary is, is incredibly important. One of the things that is important to, to know is that the judiciary is not proactive, it's reactive. And what I mean by that, the judiciary 
no judge sits there and says, you know what? I don't like what's going on. Let me bring these people into court and figure this out. They don't do that. The judiciary is reactive. You have to go to court. Someone has to go to court to file a complaint, to, to ask for some kind of mitigation. Um, and so, so when you have courts that are, um, so, so, so if, for example, I was against affirmative action, let's just say I was trying to get rid of affirmative action, I can find, I would go through the country and find a court whose judge is likely to feel the way I do about affirmative action and then file my case there. And so when that happens, I know that the path that it might take would favor me over someone who, someone who feels differently. So, the, so what they call that venue shopping, that, that's a political term, they call it venue shopping. So that's, what, that's why the judiciary is so important because the more judges you have that are favorable to the things that you care about, the less likely somebody will be able to find a judge to undo what you care about, right? Because you literally can go across the country and find one that is sympathetic to your cause. So the, the interesting point about you know, this, these, these branches is that no one can do more than the other. There's always these checks and balances, but each of them have extraordinary powers that do have an impact on your life. And I'll just end this answer with this point. I also tell people that the majority of the policies that affect your day-to-day -day lives are actually um, on the state level. That the majority of policies that come out of federal government, particularly the federal, the executive branch, they cover sort of broad strokes, but the majority of the policies that affect your day-to-day -day lives are decided at the state and local level. So everything from healthcare, most of the education policy, criminal justice and criminal justice reform, all of that is really, most of that is really done on the state level. So where the federal government spends 2% of its budget on education, which it doesn't seem like a lot, but when that money goes to the states, it is actually a lot of money, but it's only 2% of the federal budget. At the state level, education is about 25% of the budget. At the local level, about roughly the same. So you realize that like once you go leave the federal government, kind of come down to the to, to, to more local politics, these issues that you and I engage with all the time, hospitals, healthcare, where your kids go to school and how much money and resources those schools have, most of that's on a state level. And the problem is, which is I always talk about, the the turnout in elections is usually pretty good at the presidential level but horrible at the state level. And that's where all of your, that's where all of, that's where the rubber meets the road in terms of your policy. We don't come out for state and local elections. And that's, those are the people we, we need to focus a lot more attention on. Thank you. Um, my question, I have another, I'm gonna go back to uh, 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 Judge Bennett. Mm -hmm. um, the Trump-Pence camp appears to be concerned that if Judge Bennett gets confirmed and the Biden-Harris camp win the election, that the Biden-Harris team will stack the bench. Mm. First, in layman's terms, for our listeners, can you define the term for us stacking the bench for those who don't know what stacking the bench is? And also, if they do stack the bench, does this help or hurt the American people? Yeah, so briefly, stacking the bench just means adding more judges to the Supreme Court. That's basically what it means. It's, 
you know, it could go from nine, some people have said 13, some people said, you know, even some approaching 20. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big number. Um, it's not a new concept. This has been talked about for the last, you know, actually since FDR, because there were concerns about um, uh, the, the, the number of judges that were unfavorable to uh, president's um, policy and, and vision. So this is not a new concept. Um, and as I said, it basically just means putting more judges on the bench. The, the idea behind it is that you would, you would find a way to not have the judiciary, that bench, the Supreme Court, lean too hard to the left or to the right. In other words, it, it's an attempt to create some balance by just bringing more people on. The, one of the reasons that that doesn't always sell to many people is that, number one, um, do you create a, a, a log jam? Do you create some kind of um, you know, standoff or not standoff, but like an impasse or a, uh, an inability to make good solid decisions because there are too many people making that decision. Um, and so there's a concern about whether or not it would actually be effective in, in being able to hear certain, certain cases and actually um, um, create really good judicial decisions, number one. Number two, the other concern about it is that your intention may be to create balance but what happens if, it, if in doing so and, and putting more justices on the bench, you actually end up swinging it in one direction mm. or another. So okay. in a case like what's about to happen where you have six to three conservative to liberal justices on the Supreme Court, what happens if that becomes, you know, 10 to four? Or, you know what I mean? Like you, you've, made it, you've made the situation worse. And so there are other proposals that are out there like term limits for Supreme Court justices or age requirements. There is no age requirement for judges at the federal level. They can serve for life. But at the state level, different states have different ages at which judges are forced to retire. In New York, I think it's 70. In most states, it's around 70. Vermont's like 90, which is ridiculously high. But, um, but you know, this was set many, many, many years ago when people's life expectancy wasn't that long, but now our life expectancy is much longer. So there are a lot of states that are pushing back and trying to change those laws. But there are, there are age requirements, age limits at the state level that, um, that um, there's some, there are some people saying we should do that at the federal level as well to keep Supreme Court justices for, from, from uh, from having those seats for life and therefore, uh, ha you know, changing the tone and the, the ideology of the court for a generation, because that's what's going to happen. It's going to be a generation uh, before this court sort of swings back in the other direction or that there's more balance. But, you know, just on average, it, it'll probably take another generation before things change dramatically. So, you, you know, that makes me think about um, what will be Trump's legacy, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, how, how we're going to view him or how he's going to be, his, his legacy is going to be, be presented um, in history. 
because of all of the impact that we're going to feel from this administration for generations. Right. I wonder how, you know, that's just a, a, a thought to think about. But the question I have is so, so it, a little controversial because we, we, we mm -hmm. all aware of what's going on with Ice Cube and he's receiving some, mm -hmm. some flat um, from our community regarding um, him collaborating, uh, allegedly co collaborating with the Trump administration and assisting them in this platinum plan for black America. Um, about wealth building and those things of that nature. With that being said, um, we know that we we're seeing a record turnout of voting now. Approximately 20 million folks have already did early voting. I'm, I'm in Georgia, so it's, it's 900,000 plus folks are out there voting. And from my anecdotal experience in early voting, I see nothing but black folks out there. They're out there. How, with the history of um, um, policies um, that impact the Black community, and specifically from the Democratic um, Party, and I'm not, I, I want you to represent the whole party, but yeah. how, what, what, it, what will the Democratic Party do now moving forward, understanding the issues are for the black community specifically is more dynamic. It's not just about the, the criminal justice piece. It, it, it's not about just uh, maybe fair housing. We want wealth. We want to mm -hmm. be in this capitalist game. And that is important um, to black folks now. What will the Democratic Party do to regain the confidence of the black community? Yeah, that's a, whew, there's a lot in there. So I'm gonna try and, and be brief on all of the points because I do have a lot to say about this. So th there are a couple of things. One of the things that I say first and foremost is that I'm a black man before I'm a Democrat. So, and that, that will always be the case, right? And so while I've worn a lot of hats for the Democratic Party, you know, it's important to me to represent my interests and my family's interests and my community's interests more than anything else. So there are a lot of things that, the Democrats, you know, the Democratic Party, more, many parts of it might be advocating or talking about that I don't necessarily agree with. Like, for example, my support for charter schools. You know, there are a lot of folks in the Democratic Party because of their alignment with labor unions that don't support charters. My mother was a school teacher for 30 years and a union member, but she sent me to Catholic school. <laughs> so, you know, because every parent is going to do what's in the best interest of their child. And my thought is, if parents feel that they want a choice, particularly black and brown parents, where the, the public school system has not always treated them in an equitable and fair fashion, then why not give them that opportunity? So I look at it sort of from that lens. And I've been critical about the Democrats before on issues impacting our community. I've even written a year ago, I wrote about an article in the Daily News here in New York, um, um, criticizing Joe Biden when he was talking, you know, in, in from a debate performance where he was asked a question about what he was going to do for black community. And he had this answer that had to do with language and vocabulary and record player, if you remember that. And I was like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I wrote about that because I, I needed to be critical because it needed to be called out. Um, and so you, when you think about, you know, this sort of Ice cube thing. Yeah, you know, 
And I'll say this, if the president of the United States calls you and says, hey, what can I do to help black folk? Do you tell them to go to hell or do you give them an answer? I mean, and, and my thing is, you can tell him what you think. And then when he doesn't do anything, then tell him to go to hell, right? Like you can do both things, <laughs> you know? It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to stay in that person's camp. It doesn't even mean that you're endorsing that person. But if you're gonna be an advocate for your community, you pick up, a, if somebody says, what do I do? You pick up the phone, you give them an answer and then hold them accountable if they don't do it. That, that should be true whether that person that calls is a Democrat or a Republican. And, and look, you know, there are 333, there are over 330 million people in this country. There are over 300 languages spoken. There's no way that two parties can represent all of that diversity. It's just impossible. So what we say is, you know, what we say from a, from a democratic standpoint with that democratic hat on is who are the leaders and the party, what's the party and which leaders represent your interests more closely? And nine times out of 10, for a person, for a black person, that's going to be a Democrat. Um, but I still acknowledge that, you know, the party and the parties have done well, have done better by us, but not well by us. And I say that because think about now, housing, uh, the, the, the black home ownership is at its lowest level since the since before. The Fair Housing Act. If you think about wealth disparity in this country, the average, the the, the average white household has a median wealth of 171,000. The average black household has a median wealth of 17,000. Uh, think about that. Most of that disparity is in homeowner. A lot of that disparity is due to homeownership and the wealth that's created around that. And by the way, the one of the reasons that African-Americans have been um, excluded from that kind of wealth creation goes back all the way to FDR and the New Deal, where things like the GI Bill and other, other efforts to get us back on track during the war and after the Depression specifically excluded Black families, Black, black Americans. And you see over the course of history that all of these programs that were supposed to help Black folks, there was always this sort of hat tip to the South and to Southern segregationists who were largely Democrats at the time because they didn't want to offend you know, Southern leaders. And the effect of that is that over this time, you know, we've just been consistently left out of opportunities to create wealth. You see how our neighborhoods are being policed. We already, we know a lot about that. And so, no, I don't think that, I don't think that either party has really done well by us. But when people ask about it, I say, look, you know, the first black mayor of New York, David Dinkins, is a Democrat. Jesse Jackson was a Democrat. Shirley Chisholm is a Democrat. Uh, Barack Obama ran as a Democrat. Bill Clinton was my first vote. When he ran, he went on the Arsenio Hall show and played the saxophone. Like, I remember that. And Arsenio was like the only yeah. black person on TV at night at that time, right? And that meant something to someone who wanted to make sure, who wanted to feel like, you know, I was being heard. And I think that's really what it comes down to. Like, who's hearing you? Who do you, who's inviting you to sit at the table? And look, if the Republicans did a better job at this, um, I wouldn't have a problem with our community going to everybody. 
you know, and I'm and I'm and, and I and I said this and I've said this publicly. If you think about it, you know, Trump is very good in Israel on Israel. Like a lot of the members of the Jewish community support a lot of what he's done in Israel, particularly with the movement of the embassy. But they also understand that under his leadership, the 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 incidents of anti-Semitism have skyrocketed, right? So they they there's a way that they can understand that yes, he's done well by some issues that they care about and not done well by others. What I are concerned about is that sometimes black folks we we need to fall in love with you. It's like we don't have to f with our candidates, right? And that's that old thing like Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. I don't want us. To, I don't care if we don't fall in love with you. I just need you to do right by me with the things that I care about. And I think we have to be better at holding folks accountable for that. Um, and that's where I think uh, I think that's the sort of challenge that I think is ahead of us. So, you know, we're gonna go out in this election and it looks like, you know, as you talked about Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, other states where early voting is the highest people have seen in a long time. Um, I do think that, you know, most Democrats are gonna vote early. Uh, Republicans will probably vote largely on the day of the election or close to it in some early voting states. I'm not concerned about enthusiasm. I'm concerned about our votes getting counted in terms of like voter suppression and intimidation. But I do think there is a lot at stake. And I do think that with Kamala on the ticket, vice presidential candidates usually don't matter to the ticket, but I think her presence really does matter. Um, and uh, I, I, I think without, I, I think outside of their presence, them being elevated to the White House, um, I am concerned about the future. And, and that's why I would say I am a Democrat. I encourage people to vote Democratic, but I also encourage us to have an agenda as well. Yeah. Uh, so this is going to be my my last question for you, um, Basil. Mm -hmm. With all the murders that's been going on, I'm a, and I'm gonna call it. I'm gonna specify as murders, in my opinion. The murders of Mr. George Floyd, Miss Breonna Taylor, uh, Mr. Michael Brown, Mr. Eric Garner, Miss Sandra Bland's. You know, I'm gonna add her in the mix, even though. They still, you know, uh, saying that she hung herself. Mm -hmm. Just to name a few of the many police-involved killings across America, there's talk about defunding police departments. First, what does defunding the police mean? And second, how do you think that would impact our communities if we actually follow through and defunded the police? So defunding the police has... Uh, I, I has been a rallying cry for a lot of folks on the left, for a lot of progressives, and a lot of the protesters. I think it's in, I think people who are against it are against it for two reasons. One, because they believe that it's, they take it literally as um, we're going to take money out of the police department, well, money is going to be taken out of the police department, which means smaller departments, less resources, so on and so forth. Others that don't take it literally believe that we shouldn't use the term defund because it gives ammunition to people who want to take it literally and then create sort of a backlash. All that it means is, and, and there are some people that legitimately do believe that it should be defunded. 
And that's not unprecedented. There have been cities like, I think Minneapolis is thinking about it, Camden, New Jersey, and other cities have actually tried to both dismantle the police department and then rebuild it to change, to as sort of a move toward more toward criminal justice reform. So there is a, there are precedents for this. But, you know, the majority of folks of color that I talk to and the majority of elected officials that I talk to don't agree with it because it doesn't, it doesn't really encapsulate the entire, what, what, what I think is necessary, which is that you just have to, you just have to, you, you just have to task police officers differently and then change some of their procedures and, and, and policies. And, it, and as well, perhaps, you know, cut off certain funding so that you don't continue to militarize the police department. Um, so one part of defunding the police is, is demilitarizing them, which we saw largely after Ferguson with the tanks on the street and so on. So forth. a lot of that came out of the crime bill in 94, but a lot of that also started to increase after 9-11. Um, with in, interesting counterterrorism, so on. So uh, to defund a, a more militarized police department, to take money away from them so they can't do that. Um, part of the challenge, uh, part of the concern about defunding the police department was also around what police officers actually respond to. Should police officers be the tip of the spear, be on the front lines and responding to domestic violence calls or uh, homelessness? or people who are mentally ill, because when you involve the police department, it automatically escalates that situation. So how do you, how do you involve them, but not make them, put them on the front lines of responding to those types of calls? And then there are other things like training, changing the, how they're trained and changing qualifications. So defunding the police is really a euphemism for a lot of other, uh, a broader set of reforms but I would say that it should go beyond the police department. If you think about criminal justice reform broadly, consider the fact that of all of the elected prosecutors in this country, 95% of them are white. And just think about that, over 2,500 elected prosecutors in this country and 95% of them are white. So how do you affect change in the criminal justice, uh, in the criminal justice sphere? Um, when you when you have to rely upon the vast majority of people who don't come from our communities, right? Like that, that you just can't do that. And so, um, so I think this defund police is kind of a catch-all for paying attention to all of these issues around policing and, and law enforcement and prosecution. So, with that, with that being said, with all of the high stakes. Um, things that are approaching this election. Why should Black people vote? Historically, we 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 have not um, come out to the polls and vote since uh, Barack Obama was uh, for, nationally since Barack Obama ran for uh, the presidency for both his terms. Why should Black folks come out and vote? So I can give you an answer about how we, you know, we need to stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. People fought and died and spilled blood for our rights to vote. I can tell you that, you know, we, that voting does matter because so many, because it's important to 
get people elected who are responsive to our communities. And all of that is true. And I say it, and I said it in many different ways through the course of this conversation. But there's one thing that I think is unique to the position that I held at the state party and as a strategist that would, that would in a way, that would allow me to answer that question in a way that I think it hits home. I always encourage people to go out and vote because we know if you don't. And then what do I mean by that? When this, the board of, when you register to vote, the board of elections of every state, first of all, we don't have a national uh, standard of elections. The constitution is very clear that every state can determine the manner in which people get elected. So every state has different rules about who can get elected and how, how to get on the ballot, how to cast your vote. Um, but when you register to vote, every state collects that data. And usually it's just name, phone number, address, because that's really all you need. What ends up happening is that state political parties, Democrats and Republicans, we have access to that information. And we add on over the years things that we call enhancements. So there are certain algorithms to determine whether or not this voter is likely African-American or likely Latino or probably white based on things like where they live and so all kinds of stuff, voting is responsible. But when we look at that voter file, we don't know for whom you voted, but we know if you don't, didn't vote. And we can go back, I think maybe 20 years to, see, to get your voting history, right? When we add on those enhancements, we can figure out, or when those enhancements get added on, we can determine your likeliness to donate to a campaign, your like the likelihood that you'll volunteer. Um, and, and generally, we based on who you vote for, we can determine whether you're very liberal, whether you're sort of moderate, whether you're conservative, so on and so forth. Um, if we have that information, if we have who you actually voted for, but we can determine the likelihood that you are where you are on that ideological spectrum. Now, add to that what happened during the Obama years. Obama like sort of took this to another level because by the time he was running, guess what? We had social media. So we can now add on all of the things that you do online. So we now can add to all of that information about you that we guessed based on algorithms. What we now can add on are your, you know, what you like on Facebook. We can add on a lot of the searches on Google and we can figure out like the websites that you go on, how long you spend on those websites, what you're buying. Remember Radio Shack? Remember when you would buy anything for Radio Shack and they would ask you for your name and your, your, your address and phone number? That wasn't for yes. a warranty. They were putting it in their marketing database and they sell that data to people, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, if I remember correctly, when Radio Shack went out of business, one of the biggest sticking points in their, in their negotiations for bankruptcy was who was going to get that file because it was a substantial file yeah. of people who visited them and, and bought from them. So that information is out there. So what firms do and organizations do is collect that information about marketing, what you buy, where you go, where you visit, and they attach that to your voter file. So now we have, this pro we have profiles of voters that are pretty damn good mm. and pretty detailed. So we don't know who you voted for, but we have a really good guess of who you would vote for, why, and we definitely know whether or not you voted. And so when I tell people, when people say, well, why should I vote? 
I say, because we know if you didn't. And if you have a if you have a campaign, which you know they have very limited finite resources. So if somebody's running for office and they see that you didn't vote, but guess what? They would also see that your whole most of your building didn't vote. Or by the way, maybe most of your block didn't vote. If I have a campaign and I have limited resources and I see that this whole block hasn't voted in high numbers, why would I go to you? Mm. I know it's not gonna matter, right? And so I'll go to someplace where I know a lot of those folks do vote. Politicians on both sides of the aisle make those decisions every single day when they're campaigning. Because we know, we know, we all have access to the same information. Some a little more detailed than others based on how much you're willing to pay for some of that detail. But we sold voter files to candidates every day. That was one of the jobs of the party leader. We, we maintain that voter file. Um, we contract with the DNC to, to, to subscribe to it essentially. So every three or four months they would put in those enhancements so they would be updated regularly. And if anyone said that they were a Democrat and they wanted to run for office, we would sell them the file based on where they were running in the district that they were running in. So everyone has access to it. We see all, everyone sees the same information. So we know if everyone in, if, 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 if St. Nicholas houses turns out in large number, but Grant houses doesn't, guess where I'm spending most of my time, right? And that, that, I tell people this all the time because they don't realize that well, I'm not going to vote because I, I said, well, if you don't vote and you take a lot of your and, you, and you, you share that idea with a lot of your neighbors, why would someone come to your community? Because they know you're not going to turn out. So they'll spend their time elsewhere because they have limited time, limited resources. Similarly, which we haven't talked about, is the census. It's like that. It's, you know, when 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 I encourage people to fill out the census, I say, if you don't fill out the census, people won't we won't know that you live there. So why would we send resources to a place nobody lives, <laughs> right? Yeah, why would we so send resources to an empty apartment, right? And that's how I keep telling people the same thing with voting. Why would I why would I target policies towards you if you don't exist, right? If if you don't if you don't let us know that you care about who's making these decisions. And so that's why I tell people that it's really important to vote because yes, all the folks that I've cared about have been Democrats, but also regardless of your party, we know if you don't vote and that, that matters in the end, trust me, <laughs> it does. Free Eric Snowden. <laughs> <laughs> so so, um, so Basil, we're gonna close the, the, the cast out but I just wanna, it, are you writing any kind of books? Are you gonna appear on any of the network shows, um, CNN, anything? So if people wanted to follow you or, or get more information from you, um, here's an opportunity, you know, tell us, you know, where we should do it. We wanna support the Democratic Party. You know, is sure. there any websites we should go on? You know, hit, hit us up. So um, in terms of my appearances, you know, I'm usually on MSNBC once or twice a week. It's never a set time, so it's hard to say, but. You know, if folks want to sort of follow me and, 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 you know, watch me on some of, my, some of these programs or at least get to know the things that I read on a regular basis, they can follow me on Instagram. I'm, hold on, let me check. I got to make sure I know what my Instagram is. <laughs> there you go. Like on, I can tell you on Facebook, it's, it's my name, Basil H. Michael Jr. On Instagram, it's Basil Anthony PhD. On Twitter, it's Basil Michael PhD. 
generally speaking, it's um, it's my name somewhere with PhD attached to it. Um, Basil Anthony, PhD at Instagram, Basil Michael, PhD on Twitter, Basil Ace Michael Jr. on Facebook and I, uh, and, and on LinkedIn as well. And I regularly post my, uh, my panel appearances, but uh, moderating events. Um, and I was just, I just uh, was on a panel last night. Um, I'm in fact doing an event on Tuesday for Teachers College and doing a book talk on uh, two professors wrote a book on education in Harlem. So I'm sort of on a panel discussing that book. So I regularly send folks um, in my circle um, information to events that I think would be interesting to them. Um, books that I'm reading, articles that I find interesting. So definitely hit me up on social media. I am working on a book, but it's not so much politics as it is education policy, but that's a little ways away. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, you know, just hit me up on, on those um, on those handles and you'll have a lot of access to me at that point. So, <laughs> so I'm happy to do that. Thank you, Dr. Basil Ace Michael, PhD. That's you just call him Chopper <laughs> <laughs> Lodge, number 55, most worship prince of Grand Lodge, Alpha Phi Alpha, 100 Black Men. We are so proud of you, bro. We appreciate you, you joining the show. You know, Jazz, I know you want to say something to your bro, man, before we sign off. <laughs> Not saying no alpha secrets, my friend. <laughs> passing on no alpha secrets. But I want to say, I do want to say, uh, in in the, the 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 quoting one of our great hip hop philosophers, Dr. Dre, Dr. Dre, he said, "You are about to witness the strength of street knowledge." And ladies and gentlemen, we have just been uh, bestowed a a masterclass. In yes. American government and in politics and voting. And the words are um, very eloquent and profound. And we thank you uh, for taking the time out, out for us. And we know that it was on the strength of uh, the shields. You got two shields. So we know it was <laughs> yeah, on the strength of the shields. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I'm happy to do it. We, yeah. we, we, you know, we, we heavily, Gary heavily leaned on you. And so, you know, and, and, but we, we, we thank you, man, for appearing on, on, on our show. No, I'm happy to yes, do it, sir. brothers. And whatever I could do, man, you let me know. This is obviously very important to me that mm -hmm. everybody gets out and votes. And so, um, listen, I'm, I, I, will, I will always be available to do this because it's that important. Thank you. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is G, and I'm G. And I'm Jazz. And this is G talking all that jazz, and we're out. Peace. <laughs>